What is containment policy when it comes to international relations? And why is it important even today? Every country in their right mind will have some measure of containment as part of their daily musings of the foreign policy establishment. If you are Nepal, sandwiched between India on one side and China on the other, you will do your utmost to contain making your country a proxy for these two bigger powers. If you are India, you will want to do your best to contain Chinese influence in your neighborhood. If you are Russia, you will want to contain the US in any proxy war in, say, Ukraine or Georgia. Containment is a critical foreign policy instrument. Otto von Bismarck, the German statesman from the 1800s, maybe could be credited with using containment as a deliberate foreign policy instrument. For example, between 1873 and 1877, Germany repeatedly intervened in the internal affairs of France's neighbours. This intervention was part of an integrated strategy to promote publicism in France by strategically and ideologically isolating the clerical monarchist regime of President Patrice de Macron. It was hoped that by surrounding France with a number of liberal states, French Republicans could defeat him and his reactionary supporters. Related to that, World War I allies had launched an incursion into Russia in order to create an eastern front against Germany all during World War I. In reality, the policy was anti-Bolshevik as well as that it was also an economic war that took a major toll on Russia. By 1919, now after the war, the intervention was entirely anti-communist, although the unpopularity of the assault led to its gradual withdrawal. The U.S. simultaneously engaged in covert action against the new Soviet government as well. You see, after the 1917 October Revolution in Russia, there were calls by Western leaders to isolate the Bolshevik government, and that was because they feared some kind of worldwide communist revolution. In March 1919, the French government called for a cordon or some kind of sanitization, a ring, say, of non-communist states to isolate Soviet Russia. Now, translating that phrase, the U.S. under President Woodrow Wilson called for a what he called a quarantine. The Munich Agreement that was signed between the U.K. and Germany in 1938 was in a way also containment. Of course, it was part of the broader policy of appeasement. Now go see episode 92 on appeasement. If I had to allocate who among these started containment as a policy, then it would be France. And they were the first to think about it and think it through. Hot ears amongst you will realize that the French objective, and indeed Western objective since 1970s revolution in Russia, has been one of containment, containment of Russia, of communism, and ideally a containment of both. What Adolf Hitler and Napoleon before him showed was that invading to destroy Russia is a bloody affair and it risks backfiring. This European or Western policy of containment was abandoned in order to defeat a fellow Western country a.k.a. Germany, between 1939 and 1945. But soon afterwards, the policy returned to the fore. The proactive 
wanted to contain the commies, the Russians, and anything to do with that lot. And that was the hallmark of the United States, NATO, and generally broad Western policy after 1945. And I will argue that it remains active Western policy even today, aka the containment of Russia. That's why it is important to understand what this policy is and what its traits are. There's something called the Warsaw Uprising, and it was a major World War II operation by the Polish underground resistance in order to liberate Warsaw from German occupation. It occurred in the summer of 1944, and it was led by the Polish resistance called Home Army. The uprising was timed to coincide with the retreat of the German forces from Poland ahead of the Soviet advance. However, while approaching the eastern suburbs of the city, the Red Army temporarily halted combat operations, thus enabling the Germans to regroup and defeat the Polish resistance and to destroy the city in retaliation. Avril Harriman, the U.S. ambassador in Moscow, he used to be a confirmed optimist regarding U.S.-Soviet relations, was somewhat disillusioned by what he saw as the Soviet betrayal of that 1944 Warsaw Uprising. And this was also a concern at the Yalta Agreement concerning Poland, essentially that the recognition of the communist provincial government of the Republic of Poland, which had been installed by the Soviet Union, was agreed to. This was seen as, according to him, something of a stab in the back. Harriman would later have a significant influence in forming U.S. President Harry Truman's views on the Soviet Union. In February 1946, the U.S. State Department asked George Kennan, then the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, why the Russians opposed the creation of, say, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. He replied with a wide-ranging analysis of Russian foreign policy, now called the Long Telegram. This long telegram was actually an article in Foreign Affairs magazine under the title of X rather than using the real name of the author. The article widely introduced the term containment and advocated for its strategic use against the Soviet Union. The piece expanded on ideas expressed by Kennan in a confidential Feb 1946 telegram and it was identified by the State Department number 511, some kind of code, but informally dubbed, of course, the Long Telegram because it was 5,000 words long. First, a bit of context. Joseph Stalin, the General Secretary and de facto leader of the Soviet Union, spoke at the Bolshoi Theater on the 9th of Feb, 1946. The speech itself did not discuss foreign policy, but instead made pledges to expand industry. He justified the expansion by pointing to Marxist-Leninist theory, warning that capitalism possessed a predisposition towards conflict. Stalin's speech provoked fear in the American press and public. Why? Because the entire U.S. ecosystem and wealth was built on, you guessed it, industry, and private that. Time magazine called it the most warlike utterance since the end of World War II. This despite the familiarish statements from Stalin himself. 
the context in which they were made, including the Soviet Union's recent rejection of the Bretton Woods Agreement and the evidence that they found that the USSR was doing espionage in the US and Canada, ultimately alarmed officials in Washington, D.C. In short, to the Americans, it read as Stalin's speech, that is, to hell with the rest of the world. And as you ought to know by now, the world and the U.S. and American policymakers' eyes are one and the same. So to American ears, it sounded like a rejection of the U.S. American President Harry Truman was kind of on and off confused by Soviet policies, at times appearing belligerent and other times exercising a lot of restraint. Leaders were increasingly concluding that the existing quid pro quo strategy was ineffective against the Soviet Union but they had no replacement strategy. All this was going on while the British were desperately trying to find ways to keep the Americans in Europe so they could keep the Germans down in Europe and Russians out of Europe. The US and USSR were not really predisposed to hating one another, though they had their suspicions of each other. British prodding and near-genius foreign policy decision-making kept the Americans in, Russians out, and Germans down, a.k.a. NATO. This policy is still active to this day, September of 2022. Okay, now let's go back to the long telegram. Now, what's actually in it? So, Kanin begins by laying out the world from a Soviet perspective, his perspective of a Soviet perspective, splitting it into socialist and capitalist sectors. The alliance between the United States and Great Britain was destined to fail, according to that strategy, the Soviet strategy, and would either lead to war between them or a joint attack on the Soviet Union itself. The Soviets believed, Kalin talking here, they would ultimately prevail in such a conflict, but would need to grow their strength and exploit the capitalist tendency towards conflict amongst one another in the meantime. Kalin described these ideas as absurd, of course absurd, pointing out that the capitalist countries were not failing and were not always in conflict. Furthermore, he described the idea that the US and UK would deliberately enter a war against the Soviets as sheer nonsense. The Soviet leaders reached these, according to him, illogical sentiments, he explained, because at the bottom of the Kremlin's view of the world affairs is a traditional and instinctive Russian sense of insecurity. He continued by saying that the authority of prior Russian rulers was chaotic, fragile, and artificial in its psychological foundation, unable to stand competition, comparison, or contrast with political systems of Western countries. This understanding of Russian history was joined with the ideology of Marxism-Leninism. Their craziness, in his view, in dealing with the West was born out of necessity, seeing the rest of the world, rest of the world being the US and the West, as hostile, and it provided an excuse for them, i.e. the Soviets, for the dictatorship without which they did not know how to rule, for cruelties they did not dare to inflict, for sacrifices they found bound to demand. Until the Soviet Union either experienced consistent failures or their leader was persuaded that they were negatively affecting the nation's interests, the West could not expect any feedback from the Soviets. 
the Soviet government, Kenan continued, would be understood as occupying two distinct spaces, an official visible government and another operating without any official acknowledgement. While the former would participate in international diplomacy, the latter would attempt to undermine the capitalist nations as much as possible, including efforts to disrupt national self-confidence, to hamstring measures of national defense, and to increase social and industrial unrest. That could lead to stimulating all forms of disunity. He opined that the Soviets ultimately have no expectation or reconciliation options with the West whatsoever. Intriguingly, he concludes the long telegram, and I've spared you 5,000 words here, people, that the greatest danger, and I'm air quoting, the greatest danger that can befall us in coping with this problem of Soviet communism is that we should allow ourselves to become like those with whom we are coping, end quote. The impact of the telegram was long-lasting and immediate. It was widely accepted by Washington bureaucrats as the best explanation of Soviet behavior. Policymakers, military officials, and intelligence analysts generally came to understand that the Soviet Union's primary foreign policy goal was world domination under a communist state. The U.S. government accepted Kanan's conclusions, understanding that the Soviets had no reasonable grievances with West and would never cooperate with capitalist states. It was therefore senseless to try and address Soviet concerns, leaving a policy of containing Soviet interests as the best response. The article was ultimately leaked to Soviet intelligence, and Stalin then got his own views out in the open by having his own ambassador to the US write a telegram to Moscow. In short, it stated, and I'm air quoting, the foreign policy of the United States reflects the imperialistic tendencies of American monopolistic capitalism and is characterized by a striving for world supremacy, end quote. America would attempt to achieve supremacy here by cooperating ultimately with Great Britain. But their cooperation, Stalin argued, would, and I'm air quoting again, be plagued with, with great internal contradictions and cannot be lasting. It is quite possible that the Near East will become a center of Anglo-American contradictions that will explode the agreements now reached between the United States and England, end air quote. What we are looking at here is a dual containment policy, the one run by the USSR and the one run by the USA. The clash of containment was in essence the history of the multi-decade Cold War. Yet, the containment mindset was more clinically active in the West, in particular the now declining United Kingdom, who needed another Protestant English-speaking country as a backstop to Russian and German aggression, or even possible aggression. So what happened next? Enter NATO. And you can learn more about NATO in my episode on NATO. Anyhow, NATO was the single most important British foreign policy achievement in the post-war era. It allowed Britain to decline slowly, to offload responsibility to a similar-ish country, to put the European powers in their place so it could concentrate on rebuilding its war-torn islands, build the National Health Service, free education, social security, and so on. 
none of this would have happened without the U.S. taxpayer. The benefit that the British would enjoy ultimately made its way across the channel to continental Europe as well. And they also benefited from the U.S. taxpayer. Now that the policy of containment had powerful backers and above all it had legs, former Prime Minister Winston Churchill, Clement Attlee was Prime Minister in the later 1940s and early 1950s, even gave his now famous Iron Curtain speech. On the 5th of March 1946, Churchill, as leader of the opposition and still grand statesman, gave that speech and delivered it strategically in the US. And I'm quoting Churchill here. From Stettin in the Baltic to Tristi in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe, Warsaw, Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Budapest, Belgrade, Bucharest and Sofia. All these famous cities and the populations around them lie in what I must call the Soviet sphere, and all are subject in one form or another not only to Soviet influence, but to a very high and in some cases increasing measure of control from Moscow. End quote. Interestingly, the speech did not go down so well. The public saw Moscow at the time as friendly, while they saw Berlin and Tokyo as hostile. The phrase Iron Curtain gave popularity as a shorthand reference to the division of Europe as the Cold War strengthened. The Iron Curtain served to keep people in and information out. People throughout the West eventually came to accept and use the metaphor. Eventually, Truman of a heart took a hard line against Soviet anti-communism and took a very anti-communist policy. After that, the phrase became even more widely used as anti-Soviet terms in the West generally. Importantly for our episode here, Churchill mentioned in his speech that regions under the Soviet Union's control were expanding their leverage and power without any restriction. He contended that in order to put a break on this ongoing phenomenon, the commanding forces and strong unity between the UK and the US was critical. Stalin took notes of Churchill's speech and replied in Pravda soon afterwards. He accused Churchill of warmongering and defending Soviet friendship with Eastern European countries as a necessity to safeguard another invasion from the West. Stalin further accused Churchill of hoping to install right-wing governments in Eastern Europe with the goal of agitating those states against the USSR. Soviet politician Andrei Zantov used the term against the West in August 1946. Listen to this, and I'm quoting him. Hard as bourgeoisie politicians and writers may strive to conceal the truth of the achievements of the Soviet order and Soviet culture, hard as they may strive to erect an iron curtain, iron curtain, to keep the truth about the Soviet Union from penetrating abroad, hard as they may strive to belittle the genuine growth and scope of Soviet culture, all their efforts are foredoomed to failure. End quote. With this context in mind, consider what all those spy games were about during the Cold War what all those proxy wars were about during the Cold War, and invasions. What were they all about, even to this day? And this day, the U.S., even without a Soviet Union, has an anti-Russia foreign policy. It's built into the DNA of the U.S. government ecosystem. You can occasionally have alternative enemies, 
Arabs, Cubans, Indians, Chinese, Venezuelans, or Iranians, but the Ruskies are constant. In this endless battle, well, in this battle at least since 1991, it is the Russian state that is the weaker power surrounded by this colossal Anglo-Saxon-led alliance. The objective of containment has resulted in massive amounts of U.S. bases all over the world. This is in addition to the usual vassal states that the U.S. technically occupies, air quotes. The usual vassal states being, of course, NATO, the Five Eyes, Japan, South Korea. China was wooed against the USSR to good measure in the 1970s and 1980s, but that hasn't worked out so well. Now look at a map of Russia. Yes, it is outrageously massive, but to its north across the Arctic Sea is the US proxy of Canada, and to its east is the US itself, i.e. the state of Alaska, and in the west you have NATO countries, in the east the vassal states of Japan and South Korea. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a military-industrial containment. Any attempt by the Kremlin to venture outside of this, this, their land borders even, is a threat to freedom, democracy, and Western values, and is quickly stamped out, or attempted to be quickly stamped out. Russia, for its part, has agency too. Of course, they're not harmless victims. They have been active since 2000 in places like Africa, pretty much the entire continent of Africa, India, China, Latin America, the entire continent, but mostly in Syria, Libya, Georgia, and Ukraine. But this is a game of chess. The Western Alliance simply has more parts. It has these global bases, the money to spend, the dollar regime, the alliances, and so on. Everything built after the long telegram to contain, contain the communists is that is still in play today, but it's against the Russians. Containment. But what do the Russians see? What is their perspective? Or well, what they see is this huge power that is against just them. Their, their objective is the destruction of them. And they're spending millions more than the Russians spent on, on defense. They have a population two times more than the Russians. And this enemy's only objective is that all that spend in hardware is the ability to defeat, defend from one enemy, no one else, one enemy, and that enemy is Russia. So what in any logical sense would the Russians need to do to secure their borders if the objective of the enemy is containment and destruction? And that is to create alternative theaters for war, such as Syria, Ukraine, and build alternative alliances, such as with China and India, to counter the Anglo-Saxon-led force, whose only, again, reason to exist is to protect all those countries under the U.S. umbrella to protect against, against Russia. It is containment. As time moves forward, the U.S.-led alliances will try to refocus to China and to contain China. However, the reality is that the U.S. policymakers are less interested in wrecking China than they are Russia, and they see the end of Russia as the precursor to the end of China. Besides, the Chinese economy is more interlinked with the Western ones, so why rock that boat too much? The U.S. containment policy is top of mind still 
because the Russians are still a state. They still exist. Until that state is removed, the policy of containment will likely continue. Anyhow, that's all for this episode. Remember to like, subscribe, recommend. All the best. Mm-hmm.